Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we bring you another podcast-only episode on another aspect of the COVID pandemic. Before introducing our guest, we are asking advice of you, our listeners. If you know or are a vaccine researcher who could appear on our show to help our listeners understand the vaccine development process and how to determine which vaccines are being ethically produced, we want you. So please email us at doctor at redeemerradio.com. That's doctor at redeemerradio.com to let us know. Absolutely, Tom. And remember, that's D-O-C-T-O-R at redeemerradio.com. Today, our guest is Dr. Barbara Golder, who has appeared previously on Dr. Doctor. We're happy to have her back. Uh, Barbara is trained as a pathologist, lawyer, and ethicist, if that's not enough. She writes Murder Mysteries, the Lady Doc Mystery Series. And more to the point of today's interview, she is the editor of the Lineker Quarterly. That's L-I-N-A-C-R-E. That's the official medical journal of the Catholic Medical Association. She's going to help us understand, I hope, the torrent (laughs) of information being published online about coronavirus. What else? How do we know what to trust and what to believe. Barbara, thank you for coming back to Dr. Doctor. Barbara, I took two or three lectures in my College Philosophy of Science course before I dropped it as being incredibly uninteresting. But I did remember one thing. And that one thing is that the scientific understanding of reality is always changing, or as some people have said, is self-correcting. What do you think about that? Well, I think change is an essential part of life. And if you think about creation, as an expression of God outside of himself, it makes sense that it's going to take us a while to figure out what's going on with it. What's difficult to understand or or difficult to deal with when we encounter this kind of change is the change that we don't want and we can't control. And we have to do that. That's also part of life. So every change is a little bit because something that existed before, our understanding, our comfort level, whatever it is, doesn't exist anymore and we have to grieve that but as catholics you know we also know that out of death comes life and accepting the world as it is which is changing evolving and our understanding of it changing and evolving is really at the center of a grateful life i think wow that's that's impressive barbara so maybe we should pause for a second and give our viewers a little context we're going to talk tonight about how to put together seemingly opposite views on this pandemic because it's so frustrating to watch the news and to sort out what is right and what is not right. And so we're gonna we're gonna use some terms to try to make that make sense. Now we've talked with you in the past about this phenomenon called confirmation bias. So we're going to talk a little bit about what what that means. We throw that around like we know, like we think that everybody knows what that means. Uh, And it's not exactly true. Um, But this reminds us of Jesus' admonition to remove the plank from my eye before I go after the the speck in Tom's eye. So (laughs) help us understand and help our listeners understand um, what this thing called confirmation bias is and why is it so important to understand within the context of interpreting all this research. I think it's important to understand because we all come at things out of our gifts and limitations, our experience, how we're put together, our formation. So we all come with a very particular set of 
uh, prejudices, if you will. Simply put, we have a desire to believe certain things. We've been taught certain things. We've experienced certain things. And those desires will then affect how we interpret the world around us. Um, so we tend to stop gathering information when we've gotten enough information to confirm that we are, in fact, on the right track. Uh, so when something corresponds with our desires and our beliefs, we, we tend to stop after we've gotten that information. It's, it's really easy to see this in others, and you can see it in the discussions <laughs> about, about, about uh, coronavirus. You, know, you, can, you can talk to some people until you're blue in the face with facts, and they just don't get it. It just never penetrates. That's an expression of confirmation bias. And there's the temptation to believe that it's only an affliction of others. It's not. It's an affliction of everybody. We all have it. And so it's important to try to recognize it. I don't think you can completely eliminate it, but you can, in fact, learn to work against it. Thomas Merton once said that any opinion he had that's, that wasn't necessary for him to hold, in other words, it wasn't absolutely important in, in his spiritual life or his material life, that separated him from somebody else he was going to try to work against. And I think that's kind of the attitude that helps you erode that confirmation bias. Now, Barbara, um, in practical, very practical terms, it bothers me now when I'm reading the news that I can look at the source of the article and I already know what the article is going to say. So if I look at the title and I look at the source, I feel like I can predict what it's going to say. And if I think I don't like that, then I don't want to read that article. Uh, th that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? Exactly. And, and you're right. We've learned to, because we are experienced people and we learn from our experiences, we've learned to expect certain things from certain people. And we tend to shut them off if we don't want to hear it. Now, involved with confirmation bias are really trying to feed two needs that as human beings we often feel. Uh, one of them is a very good need, and that's the need to be right. In other words, to know the truth. I mean, the truth will set us free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But there's a troublesome need that we often feel, and that's the need to have been right in the past, uh, which can often be a very prideful need that is hard to uh, give up. So how does confirmation bias often prevent us from actually seeking the truth because we're so stuck on wanting to confirm that we were right in the past, even if we weren't? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between truth and truths. Okay, and I, I really think that's important because the truth, as you point out, is a person, a divine person, that we're never really going to get our arms completely around. Truths, on the other hand, we can, on the other hand, we can get a, a better handle on. So we are rarely right on all counts. We each have a piece of the, the greater truth, but we're rarely right on everything, and I think that's important to remember. Um, one thing we also have to remember is that we struggle, and that includes me, with the idea that somebody, especially somebody we don't like or have come not to, not to respect, use your, use your imagination, that they might have something that actually we need that it's a reciprocal relationship. It's one of the reasons we are a body, because each of us has a different piece. And that's a really hard thing to do. So that those articles that we don't look at because we know what they're going to say, they might actually have something in there we need to know. And that's important. So um, being able to juggle those things is, is a difficult thing, but I think it's, it's the measure of an inquisitive mind. 
Now, it's interesting, if, if a listener just tuned in just this second, they would think, oh, I made a mistake. I thought I was listening to the Dr. Doctor show. <laughs> medicine. These sounds like a bunch of academics talking about philosophy. But the challenge is for us and for all of our listeners is um, we've got an article that says this about the pandemic and an article that says that about the pandemic. We have a tendency to want to believe the that and disregard the this. And uh, I think it's important to point out, you're trying to help us find a way to find some truth in the that and the this, aren't you? Exactly. And I think there's something else here that we, we tend to forget. Because we believe certain things about God, because we're Catholic, we believe that we can find out, if we put our heads together and use our experiences, we can find out some of these truths and use them to understand creation, including coronavirus, a little bit better. If we did not have that belief in the first place, we wouldn't even go about the idea of science. There'd be no reason. So belief actually precedes our ability really even to explore and understand the world around us. And I think that's fundamental. And Catholics are pretty comfortable with that because belief underscores everything that we do. Yeah, I remember there's this old Michael Card song that said, for I must believe to understand, you know, when it comes to faith. Uh, Barbara, there, there's something that I remember learning about in the very dry class of statistics and interpreting medical literature when I was in medical school. But it's something that is fundamental to seeking the uh, truths uh, in medicine. And that's something in an article, or when you're doing research, you're not trying to prove that something is different from something else. You're actually trying to prove that it's not different, something we call the null hypothesis. Could you explain what the null hypothesis is and why that's a very important way to do research? Right. I, th I think that one thing most people don't understand is that science doesn't really prove something. It disproves something else. And so when you're researching, you have two hypotheses. One is that the data says this isn't significant with respect to whatever phenomenon you're looking at. And one that says it is. For example, um, if I give penicillin to someone with pneumonia, it won't make a difference in the number of people that are cured as opposed to it will. Okay, so, so those are the things you're trying to distinguish. And you try to get those as narrow as you can so that you can be as sure as you can that what you're measuring is actually what you think you're measuring. And so the null hypothesis is the way that we do that. And in fact, the null hypothesis underscores everything about science, the idea that what we're looking at doesn't really tell us anything. So if, if, you, if you get to a place where you say, yes, this looks like it supports the other hypothesis that there is a difference, then you haven't proved everything about that. You've simply picked out another piece of the puzzle because a year from now or two years from now, more data may come in that makes you look at that phenomenon in a different light. And that's why science is so fascinating. That's what makes it so exciting for those of us that are in science. And it's what, make, it's what makes it so crazy making for people who want an answer right now. You know, they want it to be right now and exactly right and never change. And that doesn't happen in science. So when you're looking at an article that's presented to your journal to consider for publication, how do you look at it in terms of the null hypothesis, if it is a study, to determine whether or not it's worthy of releasing to the public? Well, I look at a number of things, and we've, we've just talked about some of them. You look at who's doing the research, what their reputation is, are they really qualified to be looking at this, do they have the training and tools to be able uh, to 
propose a decent hypothesis. Um, I look at this, we look at the sample size, we look at the statistical evaluation, we look at their conclusions and how they word them. All of that's part of the peer review process. And uh, when people are looking at this from the outside, from the, the lay world, it's not always clear that those steps need to be taken. And if you, all you have to do is go on a, a Facebook feed to see all kinds of outrageous things out there. You know, the, the, this oil or you know, lemon juice and water will cure coronavirus, that sort of thing. And part of the job of the scientist is to be able to sift through that and, and tell people what is reasonable and what's not based on the kinds of things I've just been talking about. Now, you mentioned something about fraud. Tell us what you have discovered about how scientists have discovered fraud around them in research. Well, sci scientists in, uh, in a number of different um, surveys have indicated a high percentage of them understand that they or their colleagues have encountered fraud, seen fraud, but haven't reported it. There's an awful lot of pressure on scientists in academics to produce um, research, get published, get grants, bring in money. And so consequently, the temptation to fudge the data is, is very high. I remember when I was doing research in medical school and residency, one of the things that one of my professors taught me that I've never forgotten is it's really more important to know what was excluded than what was included because it's easy to shape your data by what you exclude. And it's one of the reasons that so many uh, studies aren't reproducible the second time around when somebody else tries to do it. Now, is this conscious and intentional? Sometimes it certainly is. Maybe some, sometimes it's, it's simply the result of being hurried or being sloppy, but nevertheless, it means that there's a lot of data out there that has to be sifted through and that some of it is not as reliable as we would like. That's what we have to live with. Well, you know, uh, Tom and I as physicians are, we're just tortured with this phrase, evidence-based. <laughs> uh, and it's a buzz phrase. And so, you know, a, a patient or a nurse or an administrator or someone will come to me and they'll say, well, I have an article that says, doctor, you're an idiot, you know? <laughs> and, and I'll, of course, say, First thing I say was, well, what was the sample size? You know, I want to know that. Um, but, but the reality is, as you're describing, I think all evidence is not created equal. Uh, and our, our, our colleagues in the legal profession are very comfortable with that. Just one piece of evidence is not necessarily equal to another piece of evidence. But I think we struggle and our, our health information consumers struggle to understand that idea that just because it's published, just because it's in print doesn't necessarily mean it is the gospel. And that's what I'm hearing you say. You've got to question uh, the printed gospel to see if it really is or not. You really do. And it's also important to remember, as long as we're talking statistics here off and on, everything in the world, and I mean everything, exists in a bell curve. And there's two thin edges on the bell curve, one to the right, one to the left. And most of the stuff lands in the middle. Now, until you get the whole bell curve, you're not really sure whether you're in the middle or on the edge or on the other edge. And that's one of the reasons that multiple studies are important. Now, a single study is helpful in, in a situation like this where we're trying to adjust on the run, but ultimately it's the whole body of evidence that we need. And that takes time and it takes a lot of people looking at it. So explain to listeners how a medical 
article comes to be? How is it conceived? How does it gestate? How is it birthed and presented to the world? Well, um, basically it shows up in our queue. Somebody does a, re a research project or writes an essay or does a review of um, the literature and submits it to a journal like the Lineker Quarterly. And then how do they come up with the initial idea and then put, put it together think, to get it to I think you? It yeah, I think it depends a lot on the researcher. I mean, everybody has a particular area of interest and people will pursue their areas of interest. The Lineker Quarterly, being the Journal of the Catholic Medical Association, actually has a, a very broad range of articles in it because it's a broad, it's broad-based, Catholic-based, but broad-based. Um, sometimes, for example, we're just getting ready to put together a, a special issue, and that special issue will be uh, on a particular topic, and I've, I've asked for papers on that, so some people will respond to that, others will not. So once it gets into my queue, then it goes through peer review, and that means we choose people of like circumstances who have the same kind of expertise to put together um, a team of people who will look at the article and decide whether it's well-researched and well-written and give a report back to me, the editor. And they'll say what they think is strong about the article, what they think is not strong about the article, they'll ask questions. And we'll go through that process a couple of times, helping the author improve his paper and get it to the point where we're comfortable that it is, in fact, solid science. At which point, if it is, we will accept it and publish it. And if it's not, we'll say, thank you very much, but we can't publish this. It's, um, it's dependent on having good reviewers that are willing to spend their time to do it anonymously and to uh, be very frank with their colleagues. And so we depend on, on the expertise of our reviewing team. So Barbara, I, all of us in, in medicine know that research is relatively slow and it takes some time. And now when it comes to this pandemic, we're all in a hurry. We want the answers yesterday. We don't want to wait. So are there, and if there are, what are the dangers of this, this rush uh, to get data and to get it on paper and to get it published? Well, I think there, the, the dangers are fairly obvious. The danger is that you'll be wrong and that <laughs> someone will suffer as a result of incomplete or inadequate data. I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, the reality is, though, that's how it works in something like this. We are looking at a very rapidly changing situation with a virus nobody knows much about. And so we are going to be proceeding on the basis of what would otherwise be preliminary studies, sort of giving it a side idea where we go to another study. Um, we're doing that on the ground, sort of in the field hospital, if you will, right now. Um, that doesn't mean it's bad science. It, it means that it will have to be subjected to uh, rigorous studies afterwards, but it's gotten us an awful lot of information. If you think back, when we started this pandemic, we didn't really have any good ideas about how to treat it. We had no idea what, would, um, what it would respond to in terms of medications. And now we've got half a dozen different drug regimens that people can use and that are making a difference. So it does work, um, but it isn't foolproof. So do you think that most of the rapid release publications are uh, valuable and will stand the test of time? Or do you think a significant portion of them will found, be found to be inaccurate? I think it's going to be a little bit like I, I mentioned before. There's going to be 
some inaccuracies and some positive things, and if we put them all together, we'll be able to go back and say, this guy had this piece, and this, this woman had this piece, and this group had this piece. I think the thing that I see, which is sort of the flip side of this, is that we've had so many um, you know, Hollywood movies and blockbuster books and what have you about the brave warrior against big pharma, big medicine, <laughs> you know, big government that we've forgotten that the guys out there in the trenches really do care about taking care of patients and making them better. And so I'm disappointed at the level of suspicion that people are bringing to looking at these, um, these developments that we're making along the way. Barbara, I'd like to bring up an example that actually just came forth today in rapid publication. I'd like you to comment on it. One thing that our guest, Paul Carson, uh, public health doc in North Dakota, has been talking about is the difference between case fatality rates and infection fatality rates. And the, they both are a formula, which includes on top everybody who died of a disease, but on the bottom have different numbers. And in the infection fatality rate, it's everybody who had the virus, whether or not they had symptoms. And the case fatality rate is just the people who had symptoms. So the case fatality rate will always be equal to or greater than the infection fatality rate. So a common question has been, well, is this worse than influenza? And the data is showing that the infection fatality rate for uh, COVID is between uh, 0.5 and 0.6%. You know, about one in 200 people who um, get it, whether or not they have symptoms, die. And it's been quoted as one in a thousand for influenza. The problem is that one in a thousand number for influenza is really the case fatality rate. The infection fatality rate is actually three to six times lower. And yet on the front page of the newspaper in Fort Wayne, Indiana, it explained Indiana's data, and it said that our infection fatality rate is about 0.58%. Great data. But it compared it to the case fatality rate of the flu, and it should have compared it to the infection fatality rate. So instead of being six times worse than the flu, it would really be 12 to 40 times worse. Well, not only did I see it there, but then today the Journal of the American Medical Association published something online with exactly the same mistake between infection and case fatality rates. How can something that's so basic in terms of epidemiology be made in such a high-profile medical journal? Because it's possible to make mistakes. Humans are involved. And <laughs> a lot of it depends, I think, on what the, review, what the reviewer and what the editor are used to thinking about. I, I, I feel for this situation, because I could see myself missing something like that and making the mental correction, you know, as I'm reading through, but not catching it um, in, in the article. It just happens. Sure. And while it would be better if it didn't, and that's one of the things about more leisurely peer, leisurely peer reviews that we're more likely to catch things like that. In point of fact, those things are going to happen. And it makes it very difficult uh, to pick through the information. And that's why you go back and there will be a paper that comes out that says, okay, here's the problem with this. And these people talked about cases and these people talked about infection rates, fatality rates. And now how do we put this together? That process is long and arduous. And right now, we're feeling the press of time and, and the pressure of being in the middle of a pandemic. And we don't really have the opportunity to fix that on the run. But isn't that that's so complicated? I mean, even just trying to write down what those fractions are, it's easy to get off 
and to get confused and to get distracted, yet they're so important. Um, and the, the casual reader who just doesn't have time to dig into that math can really be maybe unintentionally and innocently misled. Um, but, but I think we can say pretty confidently, um, this pandemic, this virus is worse than influenza. We just, we could argue about how much worse it is. <laughs> uh, but for the listeners, it is worse, is it not? Absolutely. And I, I think that if you look at the numbers, we have what, something like 85,000 cases right now. Deaths, uh, yes, in the U.S. 85,000 deaths from, um, COVID, uh, from COVID. Yeah, in the U.S. in what, a month, month and a half? Now, that does not compare to the usual flu season because the flu season's over a, an extended period of time and just simple stepping back tells you that. I, uh, another example, and this is one that uh, an epidemiologist friend of mine says, is when was the last time you saw trucks outside of a, a hospital in New York City or anyplace else serving as a temporary morgue for fatalities from the flu? You know, we, our common sense tells us mm. that at least in the areas yeah. where this is really, really taken hold, it's much worse than the flu. No, I was just going to say, Tom, in the interest of transparency and honesty, I think uh, personally, early on in our podcast, I really felt like, gosh, is this really worse than the flu? Or is this just getting more media coverage than the flu? Or is there something unique about maybe one city's experience versus another? But I think now we can say weeks and weeks later, as we look at the data, because we're talking about data, we can say unequivocally, this is worse than influenza. Um, it makes influenza, it puts it in perspective. Influenza is still very, very bad, has the potential to cause a great deal of harm, but this is actually worse than influenza. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure we can drive that, that point home carefully enough. That doesn't mean we need to be paranoid. It doesn't mean we need to be panicked, but it, it is just a scientific reality at this point that um, death from this virus is worse than death from the in influenza virus. And I, and I think you've just given a good example of how to overcome confirmation bias. At the beginning of this epidemic, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We, we didn't really understand how it was communicated. We didn't understand the, the severity. Now we do. And we, you've been able to shift your perspective based on competing data. That's how you get, a, that's how you get past confirmation bias. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. But it does require... Uh, a willingness and a desire to be right to, you know, to our earlier question. So, you know, for an intellectual who wants to be informed and wants to be uh, current and correct and inspired by learning new things, we've got to be willing to be wrong and we've got to be willing to change our opinion based on new data. And if we refuse to listen to the new data, we'll never be enlightened, um, which that's pretty philosophical. That's, that's your area of expertise, certainly not mine <laughs> and Tom's. But yet, it's very important just as being a human on the planet, but it's also important, uh, you know, as being, as being a Catholic, as being a Catholic healthcare worker, we've got to be willing to be wrong and to say that, you know, when it happens. But that's tough for us. It is, but I think there's an old saying that to be able to say I'm wrong or I was wrong is simply another way of saying I'm smarter today than I was yesterday. 
And we can say that. I like that, Barbara. Well, I, I tell my co-host, Dr. McGovern, he's wrong all the time, but he doesn't seem to listen to that. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a work in progress, Chris. Um, so, 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 Barbara, when you're looking right now, I mean, at the proliferation of new articles every day, some of which has been peer-reviewed, some hasn't, how do you know or choose what to believe? I think it's difficult even for the professionals to keep up with this. There's just... It's like drinking from a fire hose. It really is. Um, and at some point, uh, fatigue just sets in. There's just so much information. You just want to throw up your hands. And I have great respect for the people on the front lines who are doing all of these various um, updates and, and keeping people in, in touch with what's going on. It's hard. Um, I think I do what I suggest that other people do. I look at who's talking. I look at what their expertise is, what their experience is. Um, or have they proved themselves reliable in the past? Does what they're saying make sense? In what way doesn't it make sense? What does that tell me about what I know and don't know? Uh, but it's it's an arduous process. It really is. And I understand why the average uh, person who's not a physician or, or not an epidemiologist, not a scientist, has trouble with this. It's, it's tough. So, yeah, how do the non-medically trained, which is most of the population, how do they know what to trust? I mean, this is a question that we come against all the time. Like, like when you and I were on the Teresa Tamio, I mean, it's her frustration and her listeners. I, I think that's true. And there's, and, and social media makes this much harder because anybody with a computer has a platform and, and lots of stuff gets out there. I think you find some well-qualified folks in the way I just described people who are, are well-trained and people that you trust because of their reputation experience. Um, and, and beware if you agree with all of them, because it probably means that you're missing something. Okay? I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Gerard Nadal has a, a pretty big Facebook presence, and he's, he's um, been very good about putting out information that's really um, consumable by the average person. So I think people like that are very helpful. The CDC Not listeners, that's N-A-D-A-L. A-L, yeah. He really is excellent. And the CDC, of course, has information that it posts. Um, state health departments have it. Um, your local town even may have a, an updated website. I think the thing you want to avoid are sites that clearly have an agenda, and that's usually fairly, fairly easy to identify, um, or or sites that aren't usually a source of scientific information. If you're getting your information about the pandemic in Sweden from a travel writer, it's probably not the best source, right? Um, so while, while there are all kinds of articles out there in all kinds of places, generally speaking, if you want to learn about science, you go to a scientific source. Barbara, earlier you mentioned to me the importance of charity in understanding this information that's being released daily. How in the world does charity, a Christian virtue, relate to medical data? Well, I, I think it relates because um, there's a section in the catechism that deals with rash judgment, which is judgment in the absence of all of the relevant information. Not what I do as a dermatologist. Where we find rash us. judgment. No. Sorry. <laughs> not, not rash judgment. <laughs> judgment of rashes as opposed to rash judgment. Oh, very good point. No, seriously. Seriously. Um, we're in a situation where we don't have anywhere near the complete picture about this virus or 
people who are recent. I mean, there's just so much going on. And so we have to be a little bit cautious about how we then interpret things. I, I don't know about you, but I am much more likely to be gentle with myself than someone else. I mean, if I make a story up about why I did something, um, it makes me look like a saint. But if I if, if somebody cuts me off in traffic, you know, he's going to be a jerk. That's how it works. <laughs> We're wired that way. It's it's kind of a tribal thing. So, but the the section in the catechism says basically, if you don't have all the information, which we don't. And you can't talk to the person making the statement or doing the action that you object to, and most of the time we can't, then you are obligated in charity to give it the most charitable, the most positive interpretation you can. And sometimes that's a, that's a stretch for me because that's not my inclination. Like I said, I'd rather make up a bad story. But charity is important in this. So, for example, there's um, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on about vaccines being developed and is this the new world order and chips and nanoparticles and all of this stuff that, that people have perhaps legitimate concerns about. But it's one thing to be concerned about those things. It's another thing to impugn motives to someone else. And that's where we tend, that's where we tend to go off the rails, that people are are, are doing things out of a bad motive. And so charity really does come into this. People can make mistakes, people can have the wrong information, people can simply fail in their duties because they're tired. It doesn't mean that they're evil or malicious. And I think that's part of what we have to remember when we're trying to sort through all of this. You know, it's interesting, uh, a non-Catholic mentor of mine that I respect used to always say, assume good intent. And I think he was, quoting the catechism and, and didn't even realize it. But that is the idea that you assume the person has has genuine good motives. They could be wrong, just like you could be wrong in listening. But we try to initiate the discussion and the evaluation from a, a perspective of assume good intent on, on your counterpart speaking. And, it, and it has the benefit of sparing us what I call recreational outrage. <laughs> Ooh, that's a new <laughs> phrase. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah, because you, know, you can get so agitated about things you can do nothing about, and they just make you mad because they're, they shouldn't be that way, but they are, because you do live in an imperfect world. And if you can sort of move yourself into that assumed good intent until proved otherwise um, sphere, you spend a lot less energy on things that you can't affect and that do nothing except make you generally angry and unhappy. <laughs> you know, we often talk about uh, reading literature with a healthy dose of skepticism, but maybe it's important to point out that's not the same thing as a healthy dose of cynicism. So exactly. we're skeptic that's about the data. Maybe there were biases in the data. Maybe there was confirmation bias and other biases. That's not the same thing as to say, well, that guy is a crook. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and that's probably an important distinction to make when we're, when we're looking at these things. I agree. How much time do you think um, so, we should be spending each day on listening to uh, stories about COVID? As little <laughs> exactly. as possible. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, go take a walk, go hug your kids, go bake a cake. 
I mean, the average person doesn't really need much more information other than um, how to keep himself or herself safe and how to keep from posing a risk to other people um, and, and what's going on in your community, what's open, what's not open, those sorts of things. We really don't need a lot of high level information. I think it is helpful now, to for know the, that- For the record, like, we, we, believe, we believe fundamentally that People need a, at least a weekly dose of Doctor Doctor. They think that's, that's been shown to be. <laughs> well, great. there is that. Yes, that would probably that would probably do it. And they do need to. And I think there is there is some um, there is some help in in knowing that things are improving and they are. I think that's helpful. The problem is you can get sort of ensnared in this twenty four seven news cycle, and people just get totally overdosed. So. Um, get what you need to, to function in your day and get enough to, to move on to the next step and then go out and live your life because that's, that's really what we're called to do. We're not really called, all of us, to be COVID experts, but we are called uh, to live our Christian lives even in quarantine. Barbara, can you apply uh, your principles to some very practical things? That is the research being released on different treatments, remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and, and all these other things. What is your read looking at the vast swath of data? I, I think they're all, they all have potential. They all have limitations. Um, when you get right down to it, um, if, I, if I get COVID, if I get coronavirus, I'm going to have to trust my doctor to, to do what seems best and that I am happy, grateful even, that there are um, these various regimens that seem to offer some help and some hope. Um, but there's an important part of that. You know, hope is, is important. But at the beginning, we didn't know any of this. Now we do. It's good that we do. I don't really have much more expertise than that. I have some, some impressions. You know, it, it seems that some of these drugs might do better if you get them on earlier. Um, and by the same token, there's some new stuff developing, some new symptoms and some new... Um, syndromes associated with coronavirus that look like they're going to need different kinds of interventions. I can't keep up with that. That's what the infectious disease people are for. And I trust them to do that. I trust them to make those judgments because I think they will. Barbara, what can you tell our listeners about the ethical vaccine development and what sources you trust? Because it's really been hard for me to find good information. I, I think that's a, a legitimate question. I mean, we have been concerned that uh, the vaccine might be involved with uh, aborted fetal cell lines, which would, would not be good. Um, this is one of those things we might actually be able to affect by demanding that vaccines be developed in, a, in an ethically appropriate way right from the beginning. So now is the time to be talking to senators, congressmen, lobbying groups that will support us in demanding um, that vaccines be developed that way. One of the places I go uh, for information is Children of God for Life. They have good source of information. Um, they have petitions. They have lobbying uh, abilities. Uh, so I use them as a resource. And if we can talk about this in a kind and sensitive way to others who may not share our, our concerns and enlist their help, that's even better. Because if you think about it, it makes sense. There are a few arguments that really hold much sway against the idea that giving two possible ways of doing something, in other words, 
cell lines that are from aborted fetuses and cell lines that are not, that it's a huge inconvenience to choose one that isn't morally offensive to a significant portion of the population. We're a pluralistic society and we ought to be able to accommodate that. And I think that good people of goodwill, even if they don't agree on the moral aspects of this, personally can understand the need to accommodate our concerns. And I think we've got a lot of work to do there and we can do it. Wow, that's excellent, Barbara. You know, um, next weekend, a lot of our listeners for the first time since this pandemic began will have the opportunity, the privilege to go back to mass. Um, And all over the country, various dioceses are trying to tackle this problem. And a lot of it is around uh, wearing masks uh, at mass, that's hard to say. And is this overkill or not? Um, and, and in my own office, we're not masking. And patients have emailed me and said, why are you not masking in your office? What sources do you have and trust to support that? So what sources do you think lead you to believe that wearing masks at mass uh, is the right thing to do now? Well, I think, I think let's go back to the overkill. It might be overkill. It might be not overkill. And we're not going to know that right now. So the bishops are charged with making a prudential judgment. Now, the bishops are charged with not just a narrow group of people, an office staff, for example. They're charged with an entire flock, and they have a lot of vulnerable people in their parishes and in their priests. I mean, I don't know what your what your diocese is like, but a significant number of priests in our diocese are in the risk group, either because of age or because of some underlying health condition. So the bishops got to make a decision based on some reasonably good evidence that protects everybody as best he can. Now, one of the things we know is that churches can be a source of outbreaks. Uh, There was a a church down in uh, Georgia that out of a choir practice ended up with something like 40 people sick early on in, in the pandemic. So we know that can happen. So they have individually taken all of this information, they've used their advisors, they've looked at their situations that vary from place to place, and they've made some prudential decisions. And because they're prudential, they're gonna vary. Uh, The decision in New York City was gonna be very different than the decision in Fargo, North Dakota, because the situations are different. So um, when it comes to masks, I think that we understand just natively that covering our face when we cough or sneeze helps prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses. So the mask makes sense. Now, whether it's as effective as it could be, that remains to be seen. Obviously, most of the masks we're using are not, but common sense says that if you can sort of reduce the number of droplets you're actually getting into the air, the better off you are. So um, I, think that's, I think that's got a reasonable basis. And by and large, most people can wear them without problems. There are some who can't, and if you can't, you shouldn't. But it really isn't uh, a huge sacrifice for most of us to wear a mask to mask, where we're going to be sitting for an hour or more in proximity to other people in a place that's enclosed with recirculating air. Now, those are different circumstances than going in and out of a store, even going in and out of a doctor's office where the time you spend is is relatively more limited. So um, 
I think the thing that here's a chance that what I'm going to do will help limit the spread of the disease and the deaths from it. What are my responsibilities as servant and friend, which is what Christ tells us to be, um, to the vulnerable and at risk people that I'm going to encounter? And that puts it in a different light than do I want to wear a mask? It's just a different thing. So long story short, I think that there can be different answers and they're both perfectly reasonable. But um, if the bishop asks us to wear masks to mass, you're right, that's hard to say. We probably should. I mean, that's not a big thing to do. And you like well, talking about rights versus relationships, Barbara. Well, I think, I think when we start talking about rights, we have put a relationship into a different category. You know, servants don't talk about rights because they don't have them. Friends don't talk about rights because they don't need them. When you start talking about rights, you're talking about being in a situation where you not only don't trust the other person to take your needs and, and desires into account, you almost expect that they won't. And so you put these rights out there. You can't go any farther than this. Um, I, I kind of had an epiphany about this when I was thinking about it a couple of days ago. When God became man, he has all kinds of rights with respect to us that he never asserted, even to the point of going to the cross. And he continued to be servant and friend to the very end. And I think that when we take that model, and it will look different for each of us because each of us is in different situations and has different gifts and limitations. But if we take that model, we come up with a very different kind of interaction with the people around us than when we insist on our own rights. That's not to say governmental rights aren't important, they are. But with respect to how we relate to each other as the body of Christ, we need to perhaps take a different perspective. And, and I think that's one of the ways to change this whole dynamic that's evolving out of this pandemic. Not what, not what am I obligated to do, not what um, can you force me to do or can I refuse to do, but how can I help make this a better situation for everybody involved? You know, Barbara, that's beautiful uh, to hear that. And I think of it um, when when I'm walking in public and I see someone with a mask on, I need to be reminded that whether they realize it or not, they're not wearing that mask for them. They're wearing that mask for me. And that immediately makes me think, oh, I should be thinking about them. That's not a very secular way to approach that that issue. And it's almost as though the, the secular arguments for society are, are being argued against by so many people wearing masks for so many other people's benefit. And I think when you think of it in those terms, it, it really becomes quite beautiful. And I think it is a small sacrifice in charity we can make for each other. And the small sacrifices count. They really do. <laughs> well, Barbara, as we as we bring this terrific conversation uh, to an end, what are some final thoughts that you'd like to leave uh, with our listeners? I, I think that uh, St. Padre Pio probably said it best, pray, hope, and don't worry. We're going to get through this. Um, we should do all that we can to be an example to the loving, of, of Christ's loving care for us to the rest of the world. This is an opportunity to show the world that Christians actually do this differently um, than other people and to lead by witness. And I'd like to see that come out of this. I think it will. Okay, Barbara, break. thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show to help other people find us. And please send us your questions. Tell us, tell us how you think we're doing, what you'd like to hear more of or less of, and maybe something that changed your life. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing something I promise is equally enlightening and fascinating. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.